welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 91, Academia and the New Dark Age, Part 6, Head Girls vs. Physician Thought Criminals. The journals of the American Medical Association, or JAMA Network, are a stable of peer-reviewed medical journals published by the American Medical Association. The flagship publication, JAMA, is, according to that bastion of truthiness, Wikipedia, ranked as the third leading journal in the category Medicine, General and Internal. I've been a subscriber to JAMA's email alert service for many years. I receive an email notifying me when new articles in and new issues of the journals that I'm particularly interested in are published. This service is completely free and anyone can sign up for it. Much of the content is behind a paywall, but by entering an article's digital object identifier or DOI into the website SciHub, I can usually obtain the full text for free. This is very useful because precious little that is published in any of the JAMA journals is worth paying for. I noticed that the JAMA stable had been tumbling down the woke hole several years ago. Articles that obsessively focus on racial and sexual inequity have become more and more prevalent. In the last couple of years, JAMA has become fixated on disparities related to gender, whatever the hell that means, given that definitions of gender and gender identity are slipperier than a Pfizer flunky giving testimony before the Australian Senate. Uh, Senator, we strongly believe and we reiterate that the vaccine is safe and effective for its intended use. What changed was that the virus evolved. If we look at the clinical data from before the virus mutated into Delta, Omicron and sub subsequent variants, the vaccine maintained high levels of efficacy. If we look at the six-month data uh, from the pivotal trial, uh, efficacy for pre prevention of serious... Sorry, uh, I'm not referring to trials. I'm referring to the fact. I'm referring to the Omicron variant. And that's that's a product of the, the nature of the vaccine where you have actually designed a vaccine that's an epitope on one spike protein and not the other 28 proteins in the vaccine. So that's a design fault of yours, the fact that it can't cope with other variants, because that's the nature of the way you've designed that vaccine. Senator, I categorically reject your statement. The vaccine was carefully designed against the virus that was prevalent at the time, which was the original wild-type virus, and it remained highly effective against preventing illness and preventing okay, severe thank disease. You. Can, can you define highly effective in, in terms of a duration? Senator, uh, with the wild, when the wild-type virus was prevalent, uh, efficacy of greater than, of approximately or greater than 90% was maintained at six F months for six both overall illnesses and severe disease. Because the TGA non-clinical report on the Pfizer um, vaccine said that T cells, antibodies and T cells in monkeys declined quickly after five weeks after the second dose of the vaccine. So the best we've got here in animal studies was five weeks. 35 days, a little bit over a month. So you're, why are you saying six months when animal studies showed five weeks and in human studies you cut them short after two months? 
Senator, uh, the human immune system doesn't rely on antibodies alone. Antibodies provide short-term protection against infection. T-cell and other immune responses, which are a little bit uh, more difficult to measure, provide longer-lasting so, protection. I'll, I'll, well, well, maybe you didn't hear what I just said. He said, however, antibodies and T-cells decline quickly after five weeks. That's what the TGA Pfizer non-clinical report said, five weeks. Senator, it is very difficult to measure the totality of the immune system's responses against uh, against the infection. What we need to rely well, on... Well, OK, then. So if that's the case, sorry. Yeah, just one more uh, comment. Uh, what we then need to look to is clinical outcomes. And it's very clear that even with the Omicron variant, uh, with, uh, with, with a virus that's now quite different to the original uh, virus, that efficacy uh, against, in particular, severe disease, hospitalisation uh, and people not surviving is maintained for significant okay. durations. Okay. I'm referring to infection because for the bulk of the people, half the country was infected with COVID 10 months after. And for healthy working age people, of healthy people, working age population, their risk from COVID was very low. So I'm putting in the context here that these people were forced to take a vaccine that you said, and you've said today, was effective in preventing infection. And that's not the real world data. The real world data showed that almost 50% of the population, despite being vaccinated twice, if not three times, caught COVID. And you've just said it's very difficult to measure the duration. So are you going to retract the statement that the vaccine was effective? Because you've basically contradicted yourself already. Senator, the virus had uh, approval for the prevention of infection, for the prevention of severe disease and the prevention of hospitalisation, despite the fact that the virus had evolved, had mutated significantly, vaccination remained significantly effective against severe disease and hospitalisation for prolonged periods. OK, I'll move on to safety. Thank you. May I, may I say something? I, I actually uh, reject your statement that people were forced to take the vaccine. Here's a selection of such work pseudoscience from the last couple of months. Article 1. Stress as a risk factor for mental disorders in a gendered environment. This paper is basically a giant pile of twaddle about how, quote, the differential risk for exposure to stress incurred by the social construct of gender, end quote, impacts on rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, alcoholism and other so-called mental disorders in men versus women. According to the authors, men are more likely to become alcoholics because, quote, gendered norms provide greater social acceptance of substance use among men relative to women, end quote. And definitely not because males experience more dopamine response from alcohol than females. Furthermore, women are more likely to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD because of, you know, work and family stress and something, something, something. And not because, on average, women have heightened sensitivity to negative emotion, unpleasantly titled neuroticism in the personality psychology literature, which is remarkably consistent across different ethnicities. Article number two, US postgraduate trainee racial, ethnic and gender representation and faculty compensation by specialty. In a nutshell, this piece of tosh argues that fewer U.S. medical students who are female and or from ethnicities that are, quote, underrepresented in medicine, they even have an acronym for that, it's capital U-R, lowercase i, capital M, defined as African American, Alaska Native, American Indian, Hispanic, Latino, and Native Hawaiian, or other Pacific Islander, end quote, go into the most highly paid medical specialties than white, Asian, or male students. 
because of unspecified sexism slash racism, and not because female doctors tend to work fewer hours and to gravitate towards lower paying specialties, and definitely not because US medical schools preferentially accept academically underperforming black and Hispanic students while systematically discriminating against white and Asian applicants with higher grade point averages or GPA and medical college admission test MCAT scores. I've included a graph depicting this in the post accompanying this podcast episode, and I'd highly suggest that you take a look at that, but here's the interpretation. While 56% of black students and 31% of Hispanic students in the lowest of the three bands of academic performance scores shown on this particular graph who applied to medical schools were accepted, just 6% of Asian students and 8% of white applicants with these lower scores were accepted. Of the students with the highest academic performance scores, 94% of black applicants and 83% of Hispanic applicants were accepted into medical school, compared to only 58% of Asian and 63% of white top-performing applicants. This results in a skewing of medical school admissions toward relatively underqualified black and Hispanic students. If, as one would logically assume, entry to higher paid specialties is more competitive, students with the highest academic performance will have an advantage over lower achieving students. Paper number three, Association of Racial and Ethnic Identity with Attrition from MD-PhD Training Programs. This paper found that black students enrolled in a combined MD-PhD training program were more likely to drop out of medical school and more likely to drop the PhD program and to graduate solely as an MD than white students. The authors claim to have carried out a statistical adjustment for MCAT scores, but provide no details of how this adjustment was performed. Although the study was conducted using de-identified data, meaning that students were not asked why they dropped out, the authors are convinced that there's racism afoot. They claim that, quote, black medical students report disparate experiences of mistreatment and discrimination, end quote. But the reference they cite for this assertion, a paper titled Association of Socioeconomic Status with Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society Membership Among Medical Students, does not even mention student experiences of mistreatment or discrimination. Instead, it finds that, not surprisingly, medical students with high MCAT scores were more likely to be members of an honor society whose membership criterion is high academic achievement. See previous point. And finally, cardiac arrest survival at emergency medical service agencies in catchment areas with primarily black and Hispanic populations. The authors of this non-contribution to medical progress went looking for evidence that communities with majority black and or Hispanic populations had lower survival rates of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, abbreviated as OHCA, which is an abrupt cessation of heartbeat than majority white or Asian communities. Disappointingly for them, they found that survival rates for OHCA were a mere 1.9% lower at emergency medical service or EMS agencies working in black and Hispanic catchment areas than in white or Asian catchment areas, and that, quote, this difference was not explained by EMS response times, rates of EMS termination of resuscitation, or first responder rates of initiating cardiopulmonary resuscitation or applying an automated external defibrillator, end quote. In other words, the paltry difference in survival rates could not be attributed to brown or black OHCA sufferers receiving worse care. Nonetheless, the authors remain convinced that there must be an explanation related to, quote, structural racism, end quote, even though they failed to locate any, and those lower survival rates couldn't possibly be related to a markedly higher prevalence of risk factors for sudden cardiac death in black and Hispanic individuals. There are plenty more examples that I could cite, but I think I've made my point. 
The emphasis that JAMA editors accord to such articles and their panicked response to accusations that they're not anti-racist enough, which in 2021 led to the forced resignations of their editor-in-chief and deputy editor for the thought crime of proposing the use of a less divisive term than structural racism, paint a clear picture. According to JAMA, any and all differences in patient outcomes are attributable to structural racism, sexism, and whatever the hell we're supposed to call discrimination based on gender, which, I'll remind you, is merely a social construct. It will happily publish papers with sloppy methodology and conclusions that are inconsistent with the study findings as long as they support this postmodernist worldview. Now that you have a sense of JAMA's ideological stance, I'm sure you won't be shocked to learn that it's all in on the official COVID narrative. So all in, in fact, that in mid-August, it published an article written by five head girls from the Department of Health Promotion and Policy at the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts, which excoriated US physicians for sharing, quote, COVID-19 misinformation, end quote, on social media, and called for federal and state governments to coordinate with professional regulatory bodies to, quote, regulate content or discipline physicians who participate in misinformation propagation related to COVID-19 or other conditions, end quote. Just a side note, you simply must read Bruce Charlton's pointy piece on head girl syndrome. It will help you make sense of the midwidocracy that currently rules over us. Here's just a brief teaser. Quote, modern society is run by head girls of both sexes, hence there is no place for the creative genius. Modern colleges aim at recruiting head girls. So do universities, so does science, so do the arts, so does the mass media, so does the legal profession, so does medicine, so does the military. And in doing so, they filter out and exclude creative genius. The head girl can never be a creative genius because she does what other people want by the standards they most value. She will work harder and at a higher standard in doing whatever it is that social pressure tells her to do. And she will do this by whatever social standards prevail, only more thoroughly, end quote. And that is from Charlton's article called The Head Girl Syndrome, The Opposite of Creative Genius. And how, pray tell, do the authors of this illustrious piece of scholarship, which consisted of trawling through social media sites to find examples of COVID-19 wrongthink expressed by physicians, and then hyperventilating about how dangerous it was and how the perps must be punished and silenced, how do they define COVID-19 misinformation? You'll be shocked, I tell you, shocked to learn that, quote, we defined COVID-19 misinformation as assertions unsupported by or contradicting U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, guidance on COVID-19 prevention and treatment during the period assessed or contradicting the existing state of scientific evidence for any topics not covered by the CDC, summarized in e-table and supplement one, end quote. Would you like to see that table of the incontestable scientific facts about COVID, which those thought criminal doctors contradicted? Of course you would, and so I've reproduced it in the post to come from this podcast episode. Here's what it says. Under misinformation type vaccine ineffectiveness, the public health guidelines listed are, one, COVID-19 vaccines prevent serious illness, hospitalisation and death, and two, building immunity through vaccination is safer and more reliable than getting infected. Under the misinformation type vaccine risks, the public health guidelines are the COVID-19 vaccines have been evaluated in several clinical trials and have met the FDA's rigorous scientific standards and adverse events and side effects are rare. Under the misinformation type promotion of unapproved medications, the public health guidelines are the benefits of hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19 do not outweigh the risks and ivermectin is not approved by the US FDA to prevent or treat COVID-19 as there is insufficient data to prove its efficacy. 
under misinformation type mask ineffectiveness, the public health guidelines are masking is a critical public health tool and reduces the spread of COVID-19. And under mask risks, the public health guidelines are masks are made from breathable material that do not restrict oxygen flow nor trap carbon dioxide and masks have not been found to interfere with social development. Now, if you can manage to read or listen through this COVID catechism without either bursting into hysterical laughter or experiencing a powerful urge to yell obscenities at the academic NPCs who compile the list, you have more self-control than I do. Feel free to share your secrets of stoicism in the comments section below. Meanwhile, here's some George Orwell for you. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though of its nature alterable, had never been altered. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All there was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. In Newspeak, DoubleThink. Now here are some examples of COVID-19 misinformation spread by those dastardly dissident doctors. Under the theme vaccine ineffectiveness, we have a Facebook post from an anesthesiologist in April of 2022 that runs as follows. It's time to recognise natural immunity as at least as good as vaccination and end the mandates. A tweet on the 26th of February 2022 by an ear, nose and throat specialist. 61% of patients who tested positive at BreatheMD last month were vaccinated. And another tweet posted on the 20th of January 2022 by a surgeon. The data are now abundantly clear. Natural immunity is more effective than vax immunity. Under the theme vaccine risks, some of the terrible pieces of misinformation were a tweet on the 8th of March 2021. According to the FDA's adverse reporting system, three dozen cases of spontaneous miscarriages or stillbirths occurred after taking the COVID-19 vaccination. This raises ethical concerns about offering pregnant women experimental biological agents. A Facebook post on the 26th of November 2022 by a critical care doctor. Poor woman dies seven minutes after her booster while still in the drugstore. Article states that the coroner concluded that she died of natural causes. Clown emoji. When will this end? At a tweet on the 12th of March 2022 by a cardiologist, of the 11,505 US deaths reported as of March the 4th, 17% occurred within 24 hours of COVID vaccination, 22% occurred within 48 hours, and 60% occurred in people who experienced an onset of injury symptoms within 48 hours of taking it, suggesting there is some hope of saving lives. Under the heading Inaccurate Claims of Research-Based Evidence of Effectiveness, we have a tweet from a critical care specialist on the 8th of July 2021. WHO's ivermectin research team lead independently publishes on 24 ivermectin randomised controlled trials in a major journal, reports large decreases in mortality, hospitalisation, time to recovery, viral clearance. And a tweet from an obstetrician gynaecologist on the 8th of March 2021. Massive peer-reviewed study of ivermectin concludes regular use as a prophylactic agent was associated with significantly reduced COVID-19 infection, hospitalisation and mortality rates. Under the heading Disputing Mask Wearing Effectiveness, we have a tweet from a haematologist-oncologist on the 13th of February 2021. If we drop mask mandates too soon, the pandemic will take the exact same trajectory it otherwise would. 
and a family medicine doctor on YouTube on the 28th of February 2021. What if the experts are wrong? What if wearing a mask in public is not effective? I'm representing thousands of physicians across the country whose voices are being silenced because we don't agree with the mainstream media and the experts who are telling us what to do. And under the heading misinformation on negative consequences of mask wearing. We have a family medicine doc on YouTube on the 25th of March 2021. One of the most heartbreaking things about the pandemic has been what's happening to the social interactions, the non-verbal cues. Masks are not a natural thing for babies to have to interface with. And an ophthalmologist tweet on the 2nd of February 2021. Masking children in schools is child abuse. Those who demand you mask your kids are demanding child abuse. Making kids eat outside in winter with masks on is child abuse. Call it what it is. There are plenty more where that came from. I strongly recommend that you go to the post accompanying this podcast episode and take a look. Now, what's that I hear you saying? That natural immunity gained from infection is superior to so-called vaccine-induced immunity against SARS-CoV-2, and that this has been known since at least August 2021, that every pharmacovigilance system around the world has been ringing five-alarm fire warnings since the rollout of COVID injectables began, that there are 99 studies of ivermectin for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 involving 137,255 patients in 28 countries that demonstrated statistically significant lower risk for infection, mortality, ventilation, ICU and hospitalisation, with improved rates of recovery and viral clearance, that there is a mountain of evidence demonstrating that face masks don't prevent viral transmission or clinical illness, do result in higher carbon dioxide concentrations in inhaled air and do interfere with children's speech acquisition and social and emotional development, that there is far more evidence for a laboratory origin of SARS-CoV-2 than for the bat-did-weird-thing-with-pangolin theory, especially when neither bats nor pangolins were sold at the supposed site of the spillover event. Shut up, you misinformation spreader. In the end, the party would announce that two, two and two, two make five. And you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make the claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. The head girls who wrote this nasty little piece of propaganda are deeply disturbed that not enough thought criminals have been punished by their licensing boards and that, God forbid, some of those fascists in the Republican Party have defended physicians' right to express differing opinions. Quote, National physicians' organisations, such as the American Medical Association, have called for disciplinary action for physicians propagating COVID-19 misinformation. But stopping physicians from propagating COVID-19 misinformation outside of the patient encounter may be challenging. Although professional speech may be regulated by courts and the FDA has been called on to address medical misinformation, few physicians appear to have faced disciplinary action. Factors such as licensing boards, lack of resources available to dedicate toward monitoring the internet, and state government officials' challenges to medical boards' authority to discipline physicians propagating misinformation may limit action, end quote. With no apparent sense of irony, the defenders of the COVID faith call for someone or other, how about the Ministry of Truth, to crack down on medicos who spread misinformation. Quote, this study's findings suggest a need for rigorous evaluation of harm that may be caused by physicians who hold a uniquely trusted position in society propagating misinformation 
ethical and legal guidelines for propagation of misinformation are needed, end quote. Oh yes, just think of all the harm that was inflicted by doctors who alerted the public to the safety signals showing up in pharmacovigilance databases, provided information on early treatment of COVID with cheap, safe, off-patent medicines and nutraceuticals, and worked to free schoolchildren from bacteria-infested communication blocking and utterly useless face nappies. Speaking of those face nappies, the head girls were particularly worked up about the January 2023 Cochrane Review, which found that cloth and surgical masks and N95 or P2 respirators are as useful as a third armpit for preventing viral respiratory illnesses. No, 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 they insist. The review doesn't prove that at all. Quote, a recent Cochrane review has been misinterpreted to have definitively shown that wearing masks does not reduce transmission of respiratory viruses and has been used to support assertions that masks definitively do not work, end quote. Except that uh, Oxford University epidemiologist Tom Jefferson, who headed up the team which produced the exhaustive 305-page Cochrane analysis of 78 high-quality scientific studies involving over 610,000 participants, has flatly stated that, quote, there is just no evidence masks make any difference, full stop, end quote. But I'm sure the head girls are way better than the Cochrane team at interpreting the science trademark. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out. Knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. To believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. To forget whatever it was necessary to forget. Then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed and then promptly to forget it again. And above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety, consciously to induce unconsciousness. And then, once again, to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. The comments on the article suggest that JAMA's readership isn't entirely on board with the party's agenda. It's worth noting that the vast majority of JAMA Network articles that I have read have no comments at all, even when the subject matter is vitally important to clinical practice. But this low-quality effort, which makes precisely zero contribution to better patient outcomes, had garnered seven comments at the time of writing this post. Three of these expressed full support for punishing and censoring doctors who challenged or even raised questions about the official narrative. Here's a sample. Michael Holloway, PhD, retired, praised bow-tied big pharma stooge Peter Hotez's valiant efforts to debunk reality and fulminated, quote, These authors are right. It is the job of medical and academic institutions to take strong and effective action against pseudoscience campaigns that are actively killing people, end quote. John Rubin, MD, FACP, hyperventilated, quote, We need to show the public that we are not afraid to punish the bad apples in our profession. It is time these physicians have their academic positions, along with their board certifications and licenses, be evaluated to see if these are the colleagues we want caring for our communities, end quote. George Bussey, MD, JD, MHA, is hankering for a good doxing of the wrong thinkers. Quote, I do wish there was an appropriate place to identify and publicise the identities of these individuals. End quote. 
A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness. A desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one, even against one's will, into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet, the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blowlamp. The other four comments fan the faltering flames of hope that the field of medicine is not entirely infested with insipid head girls who wish to enforce their mediocrity on others. Martin Kurzak, MD, MSc, and Vladimir Nossel, MD, PhD, pointed out that, quote, convalescent immunity, that is the immunity gained from recovery from infection, was unfairly disregarded as the grounds for exemption from certain mandates, end quote, and that this scientifically unjustifiable position undermined the public's trust in COVID-19 vaccines. They're still fans of the transfection agents, mind you. They just think it was really dumb for people who already had immunity to SARS-CoV-2 to be mandated to take them. Daniel Benz, MD, queried the criteria used to define misinformation and asserted that, quote, the individual physicians should be able to review all information and decide for themselves which is accurate and which is not, end quote. Nigel Wilson, MB, BCH, MRCGP, FFOM of Cambridge University, pointed out the centrality of open discourse to advancement in medicine and rhetorically wondered, quote, when did we forget the fundamental principles of the Enlightenment that all ideas can be discussed and that nobody has a veto on any ideas? How do the principles of treating colleagues with respect and upholding the free speech of those with whom we disagree become so degraded, end quote? And finally, Anthony Perry, MD, retired, fired a full broadside at the head girls. Quote, It's not hard to find instances in which the consensus of authorities in medical practice was not only erroneous, but even seriously harmful, and where medical renegades turned out to be correct. In my 50 years of internal medicine practice, I observed many. I find the approach to identifying misinformation in this paper concerning. Misinformation should not be an appropriate term in scientific debate. Some of the examples of misinformation in the article are open to debate and not incontrovertible enough to demand universal acceptance, end quote. Geez, Dr. Perry, I'm glad you're retired. The thought police will be breaking down your door for that one. Don't you know that war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength? To end on a somewhat hopeful note, the new dark age that has descended on academia is now becoming so plainly visible that an increasing number of professionals, and to a lesser extent academics themselves, are beginning to rattle the cage. As Bruce Charlton astutely observed, head girls are entirely lacking in creative genius, and any institution that they dominate will, therefore, eventually become so starved of the lifeblood of innovation by its own intellectual sclerosis that it will wither and die. Our job is to nurture and hone the processes of intellectual inquiry by which high-quality ideas are produced and low-quality ones are rejected. See my previous articles, How to Sharpen Your Bullshit Detection Skills and How to Spot Bullshit Arguments, Part 1 and Part 2, until the moribund midwidocracy finally keels over. Long live the thought criminals. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.